Well, this morning, we'll look at a uh, magnificent but rarely used resurrection text, uh, namely our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 25, little portion of Isaiah known as the Little Apocalypse. Isaiah 25 is one of the great Easter texts in all of Scripture. We'll make three points that are there on your outline on page 5 in the bulletin there toward the back of your bulletin. Communion, conquest, and consummation. Communion, conquest, consummation. First then, from Isaiah 25, communion. Isaiah 25, verse 6, the prophet says, On this mountain, that is on Mount Zion, now, in the ancient Near Eastern world, mountains were considered to be the homes of the gods. And in Scripture, the Lord dwells in a high place, a holy place, in the summit of heaven, surrounded by his hosts. And earthly mountains, then, are seen as replicas of or pointers to heaven. Eden was a mountain, was on a mountain. Noah's Ark comes to rest on a mountain. The Old Covenant was made at Mount Sinai. When John comes to see the new creation in Revelation descend from heaven, he is lifted up onto a high mountain. And in our text, another mountain is in view. Mount Zion. So Zion, the location of the temple... That is the place where Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the creator of heaven and earth has placed his name. That is the place the visible presence of his glory abides there in the most holy place. This is the location where our text transpires. And this Zion as it's fulfilled in the new covenant, in the risen Christ, is a heavenly locale. It's where the church is, gathered around Christ in the highest heavens. Hebrews chapter 12 puts it this way. You have come to Mount Zion, but he doesn't mean the Zion in Jerusalem, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So the things of the Israelite theocracy, the things of the land in the Old Testament, right? Zion, the city of Jerusalem, the temple sanctuary, the priesthood, the throne of David. These are all now heavenly realities. They are where Jesus, the risen one, the high priest, the minister in the sanctuary, the Davidic king seated on the Davidic throne, is. They are where he is. And he is in heaven. Now you might think, how can there be a banquet in heaven? It's a good question and we'll come back to it. So, we are promised here in this text from Isaiah that on this heavenly mountain, The Lord Almighty, literally the Lord of hosts, the Lord with his angelic court surrounding him, will prepare a banquet. The Lord of hosts, it turns out, 
is the consummate host. And the name, the very name, Lord of hosts, brings into view the Lord as a triumphant warrior, victorious over all. This one, on Zion, to celebrate his victory, hosts a feast. And notice, it's a universal, global feast. It's a feast for all peoples. The theme is shot through the text. All peoples, all nations, all faces, all the earth. And when the Lord holds a feast, it turns out he doesn't skimp. Like he's not a miser. It's lavish. The language is extravagant. It's overflowing with abundance. It's a feast, the text says, of rich food. Rich food full of marrow. And the best of meats. It's a banquet of well-aged wine. Now these images, right, they, they should inform our approach to feasting and hospitality. But they are metaphors. They're metaphors pointing to joyful, embodied, intimate fellowship with God and his people. For this feast, it's your spiritual taste buds which need to be developed and sharpened. We know this from Isaiah himself. Like, for example, in Isaiah 55, the Lord summons us. Ho, everyone who is thirsty, come and eat, come and drink. And the feast that he gives is things like abundant pardon, steadfast and sure love. So the the choicest of God's stores in this age are his word and the sacraments and prayer and praise and fellowship. But all of these things, and we must never lose sight of this, they are ways of the Spirit of God mediating God's own life and presence to us. That is what it is all about in the end, right? Experiencing the triune God through the risen Jesus Christ in the Spirit. So it would be kind of disordered to focus on the wine and the meat in the text. God himself is our end. He is our portion, as we just sang from Psalm 16. And portion is a food word. God himself is our inheritance. And inheritance is a land word. God is our all in all. So all this banqueting language in Scripture is ultimately about seeing God's face in light and in glory. So this banquet then, this communion, hosted by the Lord of hosts, is on Zion for all peoples. But why is the Lord of hosts hosting a banquet? Why are the nations feasting? What victory has been wrought? And that brings us to the second point. And here we see why this is a magnificent Easter text. On this mountain, he will destroy, he will swallow up the shroud, the text says, the covering that enfolds all peoples. 
It's depicted here like a sheet. It's the language of a sheet or a veil spread out over all the nations. And this veil, this universal shroud, is death itself. He will swallow up death forever. And this is Isaiah in 800 B.C. But there's, you know, there's a deep and sober realism in the text, right? In recognizing this universal hovering shroud of death. This realism is necessary as the prelude, right, to the untainted joy of the beast. So the text is clear. Death is the pervasive, ever-present reality which hangs over and haunts all peoples. It's a pall. It's a shadow. It's a veil. It blocks. It shunts off the light of genuine human joy and liberation. And we're magnificent at averting our eyes from it. But until it can be seen and squarely faced, right, for the horror and the vile enemy that it is, then resurrection joy, resurrection joy can never ring out in its fullness. So Isaiah sees the Lord of hosts here, the one who conquers, who finally definitively shatters and who indeed swallows up and who engulfs death itself in immortal life. I always like to say, Christianity is not nibbling around the edges of the question of human existence. It is either nonsense or it is the destruction of death itself. Those are the only two things it can be. Right? The claim of the prophets is that the God of Israel is going to swallow up and engulf death itself. This is the unspeakable Easter glory. And yet the language is clearly speaking of the future resurrection of the dead. The future liberation of the whole groaning creation. It's speaking of the full harvest of which the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits. We know this by a careful reading of Isaiah, but we know it also by seeing how Paul uses our text. Listen to how the Apostle Paul uses our text from Isaiah in 1 Corinthians 15, which was read this morning. Speaking of our future bodily resurrection, he says this. Now notice the when and the then. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That's a citation from our text. Paul cites Isaiah 25. As he's speaking of the future general resurrection of the dead, then death, the last enemy, is swallowed up forever. Then we sing the taunt, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Then, then, what we receive now by faith in the risen Christ has become sight. It is then that resurrection glory becomes a permanent, global, universal fact.
fact. It is then that the curse is gone. Death is swallowed up forever. And because death is swallowed up, we can swallow up the banquet that is set before us. This is the full flower, the full flower of the Easter promise. And this conquest, this conquest comes with the Lord's most tender consolation. Look at the text. It says, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. It's a touching and it's a tender image. It's used in Revelation 21 of God doing this to the redeemed in glory, where God personally moves, if you will, from person to person, from face to face, and dries all the tears, every last tear, from every face of his suffering people. God takes his own finger and wipes them away. And we have in this no rationalizing of evil. No fitting it into some pattern. God does not in the end explain death and injustice to us. He does something better. He obliterates them. He swallows them up. He wipes the tears of history away. And he makes all things new. This is the full flower of the Easter hope. What do you think those Christians at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, having just had their nine-year-old daughter shot dead in front of them, having just had those funerals with those four-foot coffins, with those parents draped over those coffins in unspeakable grief, what do they need? What do they want? Where is their hope? Well, you can do two things. They're the only two things humans can do. Curse God and die or believe in the resurrection. There's nothing in between there. You want your girl back in embodied splendor and fullness. And you want the horror of the memory wiped away and annihilated and swallowed up so that it won't even be worthy to be compared to the glory which is to come. This is what the gospel promises. At this point, you can see this in Isaiah, at the end of verse 8, the reproach of his people, their shame, is taken away from all the earth. It is having done this, having swallowed up death and the veil, that the Lord of hosts, victorious over death, hosts a banquet. So the banquet, the feast, is coincident with the destruction of death. He swallows up death so that on Zion all nations can swallow up the best of meats and the finest of wines. That is the conquest. And it means, and we can see this hopefully clearly now, it means that the banquet that's in view here is none other than the coming wedding supper of the Lamb. It's the banquet anticipated by that banquet. Finally, the consummation. Verse 9. In that day, they will say. 
What day? What day is it that the prophets are talking about when they talk about the nation streaming into Zion? It's the day of death's final, complete destruction. It's the day of the Lord of hosts' cosmic victory being fully unveiled. It's the day of the everlasting banquet of all nations on the Zion of God. It's the day when every tear is dried from every face. On that day, the redeemed will say, and this this is what those families in Nashville will say on that day, surely this is our God. This day is the day of God, the day of his full splendor and revelation, the day of face-to-face, consummate, perfected communion. Surely this is our God, the text says. We trusted, literally we waited for him. And he saved us. Yes, we are saved now. But we are saved in hope. And no one knows this more acutely than those families of our brothers and sisters. We are saved in groaning and in longing. We walk by faith and not by sight. We see through a glass darkly. We wage an anguished war against sin. We bury our own children. All of that is past here in this text from Isaiah. All of it is past. Here he has forever fully finished the good work he has started. He has saved us. You know how Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Here, eyes are seeing and ears are hearing and hearts are lit up with the glory of the day. It is this, this that we are waiting for. Salvation, a current possession in this age, is permanently, deep down in its DNA, in a posture, in a mood, in a state of waiting. You have turned from idols, Paul says, to serve the living God and to wait. For what? For his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath which is to come. 1 Thessalonians 1. Our commonwealth, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await A Savior who will do what? Who will transform our lowly bodies, bullet-riddled or not, so that they conform to his glorious body. It is basic to Christian conversion, then, to, to turning to God, Paul says, to be waiting and watching for this day. This day which we enjoy the benefits of now. This day which we exult in now. This day which we give thanks for now. But nevertheless, this day of which we have but a down payment on our full inheritance. The gifts we have now are the seed. Isaiah 25 is the full fruit. This is the Easter hope. And here our text ends with these words. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is the praise of the consummation. 
It's the praise of those whose warfare is over. It's the praise of parents united with their slaughtered nine-year-olds. It's praise which doesn't live in the shadowlands. It's praise which never visits hospitals or cemeteries. It's praise in a realm where there is no veil. No sheets spread over the nations. It's the praise of people who have entered the everlasting banquet hall of the living God. These are the people who declare, surely this is our God. We have waited for him. He has saved us. Let me make three brief points to close. One for each point in the sermon. So first, if we think of communion here, Zion, where this banquet occurs, is in heaven, we said. You need to think of heaven as a created but currently veiled realm. Not a place far, a place near, a place big, a place wide, but veiled. It's where Christ is. It is the place illumined by the immediate glory of the triune God. But we know, we know from the book of Revelation that at the end of the age, Zion... The Jerusalem from above descends. She descends from heaven. She's the centerpiece of the new creation. It is then that this banquet of all the nations and all peoples, this feast on Zion, will commence. Now, of course, we partake of it now, right there, by faith in the Lord's Supper, in communion with God, in hospitality and fellowship with one another. We can take and partake of this feast now. How can we partake of it now when you think about it? It's not because it's already here in fullness. It is not. But rather it's because you are already there by faith. You have come to Mount Zion, the writer to the Hebrews says. Mount Zion has not yet descended to you. You have been lifted up out into that reality and you are seated there. With Christ. But it will descend when Jesus descends, and her descent will transfigure the cosmos, usher in the new creation, heavenize the earthly realm, and the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and the feast will no longer be by word. It will no longer be by sacrament. It will no longer be even by faith. All of those things are the mode of our pilgrimage, not the mode of our destiny. Right? The manna from heaven stopped when Israel entered the land. This manna will stop when you enter the new creation. So we've got the foretaste now. Let us yearn for the full banquet. Second, conquest. It's right here in this text that we see that Easter then is a cosmic event. It can't be shut up into someone's personal piety. The conquest of death in Christ's resurrection guarantees that the veil or the shroud or the sheet covering the nations will be lifted. We are raised with Christ now. Yet we die. Yet our children die. Our mortal bodies, Paul says, are dead because of sin. Our inner man is renewed, but our outer man decays. 
Christ is raised, and we are in our inner man raised with him. But the veil still shrouds the nations. We are awaiting, Paul says, the redemption of our bodies. And the whole creation groans for that. And so here we see that Jesus' resurrection, the Easter event, is the pledge, is the guarantee of this scene in our text from Isaiah. Indeed, it sets the scene in motion. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, then, then you can taunt death. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Jesus' resurrection must make us yearn for the resurrection of all because it is the first fruits of that event. In the same way that an appetizer makes you yearn for the rest of the meal. There's an organic connection. They are the same event in two phases. Finally, the consummation. All the nations, all the redeemed, all of creation. Like every suffering, tear-stained face. Right? For, for them, the fullness of Easter, though tasted now, though guaranteed, is still future. Yes, we commune with God now. Blessed be the Lord. But we commune as a people stretched out to this day. Easter means not merely triumph and exaltation now, though it does gloriously mean that. This text shows us it means full future cosmic triumph. It means the day when we will say, surely, This is our God. We waited for him and he saved us. The day when he appears and we shall be made like him for we shall see him as he is. Right? Paul says that as well. When Christ appears, when Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. Then we will say, the then is crucial to get, right? Then we will say with all the saints, with people of all the nations, We will say it in heightened, exalted, immortal, glorious fullness. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen.